Hello and welcome to Battlecast. I'm Luke and I'm joined in the bunker with the man who puts the con in conservative. I'm talking about Chris, ladies and gentlemen. Chris, say something to the people. Hey, buddy. Well, as I like to say, Luke, I'm only as conservative as the dude I'm standing next to. Well, when in Rome, I do as the Romans. Okay, well, today we have an interesting show. We're talking about the Caravan of Death. And yes, this is the name mainstream scholarship has given to the events we're going to discuss today. I know it sounds like a name I would dream up on our lurid show, but I didn't come up with it. By the way, speaking of lurid, I want to read some hate mail we got. Woo, we got hate mail? I love hate mail. In the hierarchy of mail, a person can receive hate mail as number two, right behind a check from the class action lawsuit that you didn't even know you were a party to. (laughs) Seriously, I want to hear how not great we are. Because I already know that I'm great. I just want to hear from the individual whose blood pressure I've raised and how I can potentially do it again. (laughs) All right, well, listen to this. You are a disgrace. At first I thought this letter was for you. No, that sounds you. All right, well, recently I stumbled across your show on Twitter. I was horrified to hear the host cashing in on the violence and sordid warfare of the 20th century in your lurid podcast. I'm not pleased and will be reporting your show to iTunes. This podcast is definitely mature and should be rated as such. You should be ashamed of yourself. All right, first off, there's no way she stumbled across it on Twitter. Yeah, there is. I post on Twitter sometimes. I don't believe it. <laughs> All right. Well. In a second, nobody's cashing in on this thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, that's exactly right. Guys, we don't make a dime from the podcast. The men we talk about on this show gave their lives for you or for someone like you in another country in another time. They deserve to have their story told. Chris, what do you think? Uh, this woman sounds like she's fun at parties. That's all I can say. And I deplore limits on free speech. Anyone can talk about anything, anytime they want. You know that. I know that. And if she doesn't know that, she needs to learn that. And, you know, that's that's how I roll. All right. Well, I'm sure the Marquis de Sade appreciates your support, Chris. Dang straight he does. Now, after that digression, let's jump into a detailed depiction of torture. Oh, I mean the beer review. Beer review! What would it do? Why? Why? I just, just see his face right now. You should just see it. <laughs> okay, today we're drinking Hop Dang Diggity from the great people at Jekyll Brewing out of Atlanta. Hop Dang Diggity is a southern IPA, which is something I've never heard of before. And I was really looking forward to cracking open one of these bad boys. It's 6.7% alcohol by volume and has an IBU of 74. Let's see what we're working with. Oh, yeah, this is a great beer. Chris, what are your thoughts? Oh, yeah, great beer. It's kind of, it, pour, it pours a uh, kind of an orange, cloudy color. Oh, it tastes great, too. It's uh, very, very, very citrusy. Yeah, I'm getting that. You know, I thought it would be a lot more bitter, but it's going down super smooth. No, no, very smooth for an IPA. For, uh, for an IV, heavy IBU. For the high IBUs, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm going to go high with our rating on this one. 4.5 bullets out of 5. This is a great IPA, one of the best I've had in years. And if you love hops, you're going to love this beer. Do yourself a favor and get out there and try it. Oh, yeah, I'll go four and I'll go 4.5 with you for this one. Our friends up at Jekyll do a great job brewing. They have an awesome tap room. If you're ever in Atlanta and you're ever up 400, kind of near Alpharetta, yeah. It's a great place to sit down, have a beer, watch some TV. He's right. It's pretty cool. With that, let's fly across the world to the Andes Mountains in the great nation of Chile. The folk singer Victor Hara was captured and tortured. His hands were broken. Later, 
he was killed. Many were taken to the National Soccer Stadium and held prisoner there. I saw quite a lot of brutality. I've seen a man with three men with guns on him and then disappearing for a little while into the shade at the back of the stadium, into a room at the back of the stadium, and then we saw somebody just could make him out being carried out. Richard Barber and Adrian Jansen, British subjects, were imprisoned in the National Stadium as well. The second morning we were there, uh, guards came in, uh, told us to stand against the wall and uh, presented brooms to a number of them, a number of us. One broom was presented to me. I paused for a moment, but thankfully I accepted the broom and started to sweep. Another British fellow there um, said, I'm British, I, I'm, I'm here for no reason at all, I refuse to do this. He was pulled down from the bench he was standing on, we'd all been instructed to stand on the bench. He was rifle-butted in the back and then very hard in the stomach. And these are by carabineros who may ultimately be decent men, but they've been turned on to a sort of rich diet of xenophobic and hatred of all foreigners. They've been told it's the foreign extremists, it's the foreigners are responsible. Arrests and disappearances continued as the generals who had planned the coup consolidated power. All right, 1970, the population of Chile numbered just 9.5 million people. To put things in perspective, the state of North Carolina has a similar population. Chile is a long, narrow country stretching along South America's western edge with more than 6,000 kilometers of Pacific Ocean coastline. In 1961, Chile had a large population of people in poverty. Cayampas, what Paul Sigmund calls shantytowns, were springing up all over the country. Meanwhile, as the 1960s wore on, inflation was increasing rapidly, while at the same time, industrial production in the country was falling. The government tried to help the large population of poverty-stricken people, but was consistently hampered by lack of funds. Many of the country's larger macroeconomic problems called for austerity measures, which cut into the social spending. Here's how Paul Sigmund describes Chile in 1962, quote, The government was chronically short of money for social programs. Once the choice was made to abandon austerity, a price had to be paid in serious inflation, balance of payment difficulties, increasing government deficits, and foreign borrowing. A major devaluation in October 1962 showed the currency was not stable, end quote. In 1964, the major leftist party, the FRAP, or Popular Action Front, dominated by two Marxist parties, blamed all of Chile's problems on bankers, capitalists, large landowners, and foreign interests. Chris, it's radio. They can't see you. <laughs> well, that's much better than the uh, Chile People's Popular Front. <laughs> oh, or the yeah. Chilean People's Popular Front. The Popular Front of Judea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Solidarity, brother. Now, some of these criticisms had seeds of truth. For example, the mining of copper was a huge segment of Chile's economy, and it was dominated by U.S. businesses. Many leftists and even centrist parties began to call for the nationalization of the copper industry. So when middle-of-the-road parties are calling for nationalizing major sectors of your industry, your country is veering to the left. I mean, we can it's going that way. So the U.S. had widespread economic interests in Chile. That's true. And I have to admit, this often leads to direct political manipulation in countries where large-scale investment takes place, and not just by the U.S., I might point out. Furthermore, political manipulation happens all over the world. For example, South Africa 
often intervened in Angola to protect a large dam South African capital had financed before Angola became independent of Portugal. The same method was used by the U.S. in Chile. In 1964, the CIA funneled over $2.6 million to centrist parties in Chile during the national elections, and even more CIA money was funneled to right-wing parties in the same year. Again, hey, Money's protected under the free speech, the First Amendment. <laughs> money is free speech. Money is free speech. Well, you know, maybe it's not protected in Chile, because we're sending it to another country. Maybe it's not the same laws there, right? Maybe. All right, so anyways, again, this isn't Luke Wolf's opinion on this subject, Paul Sigman, a well-respected Princeton professor, gives these numbers. I'm just reporting them to you. This kind of undemocratic influence of elections happens all over the world still today. In the late 90s, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright spent $30 million setting up an opposition party against Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia. I want to note that much of the $2.5 million the CIA spent in the 1964 Chilean campaign came from private sources, not governmental money. By the way, I can't stand the undermining of democracy by money. It's the most serious threat to democracy in the world. John Rawls, a liberal political philosopher, called the influence of money the greatest threat to democracy that he could see, and he could he could find no solution to the problem. That's because he couldn't get anybody to give him any money. <laughs> Actually, he was a well-paid professor, but anyways. We're not going to solve this problem on our show today. We're but not? I, no. If you came here looking for that, that's not going to happen. No. But I would tell you, be the change you want to see. I had an apologist tell me to be a good steward of what I've been given. And if everyone did that, liberty would spread across the world. If you treat women like crap, don't be surprised when the government treats you like crap. Be the change you want to see. Anyways, let's get back to Chile. Yay. In the 1964 election, the centrist candidate, Eduardo Free, won the election by 56.1%. Over the next six years, his administration and country would be racked by financial and social problems, along with escalating violence. In 1966, the centrist government, with pressure from Marxist parties, threatened to confiscate farms comprising more than 160 acres. The owners of the farms would be compensated by government bonds at 3% interest. However, the inflation rate at the time was 17%. So in a few years, these bonds would be essentially worthless. (laughs) Of course, this alienated a large plurality of citizens. It did? Yeah, it did. Wow. (laughs) Now, these alienated people are a minority of the population, but they're looking around at a country that blames them for everything. Mm -hmm. They can form an important base for a counter-revolution. The government, led by a supposed centrist, is talking about confiscating property. This shows how the country had veered to the left. And in 1965, the centrist government experienced a massive fall in electoral support. While free, the centrist president retained power, large numbers of the electorate had moved to the right and the extreme left. By 1969, inflation was at 30%. That's a big number. That is a huge number. The country was polarizing. In January 1966, the country started to slide into a cycle of violence. Since January 1966, the copper mine at El Teniente had been on strike, and after the March election, the left-dominated unions called a sympathy strike at mines in the north. The government declared the strikes illegal and moved in troops. When the 85 soldiers were opposed by a 1,000 miners and their families using sticks, stones, and knives, the troops, under the command 
of one colonel named Augusto Pinochet opened fire on them, killing six workers and two housewives. The left called the incident a massacre and cited it for years to prove that the centrist government was opposed to the workers. Well, it looks like they, they printed enough pamphlets. They because they had everybody show up, you know. If you don't print enough pamphlets, people don't show up. <laughs> well, back then, you know, if you're hungry, you're going to show up. Yeah, well, but you need to know where. <laughs> okay, well, informational what? guide. All right. In November 1966, don't ever lead a revolution. You'd be bad at it if you didn't print enough pamphlets. I, guys, when I start the revolution, I'm going to print pamphlets for each of you. Don't worry. In November 1966, the trade unions of Chile called a general strike. During the strike, violence broke out between police and strikers, killing six people, including one child, seriously wounding 64 more people. This was just the beginning of the war that was brewing on the streets of Chile. It got worse as time went on. In March 1970, in the southern city of Puerto Montt, a group of 91 families occupied a tract of land in order to build themselves housing, which they could not find any other way. On Saturday, March 8th, the chief of the local National Police Force arrived with 200 armed men in an order for the families to remove themselves from the tract. The occupants sounded an alarm and approximately a thousand people descended from out of nowhere on the police. It was like people were coming out of the ground to attack them. In the ensuing battle, seven people were killed and 47 injured, including 20 police officers. The massacre at Puerto Montt was immediately denounced by the opposition parties, and it polarized the electorate even further. Even wave attacks, baby. When you, when you ain't got nothing but bodies. Sticks. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, and then, then they just blow up more buildings, creating more rocks. They just give the other side more ammo. The, there was urban terrorism going on. We're going to get into that now. Now I want to talk to you about MIR, the revolutionary left movement. They were the heart of left-wing violence in the late 1960s and early 1970s when they organized a series of bank robberies, assaults, and airplane hijackings. Seven high-level bank robberies and armed attacks took place in Santiago from November 1969 to June 1970. Three hijackings were attempted during the same time period. One case resulted in a gunfight that left one man dead and four wounded. War was raging in the streets of Chile. On February... The Mir announced that it was donating the money they had obtained from one of the bank robberies to the 26th of July camp, which was organized by homeless slum dwellers under the leadership of Mir. So they're saying, we are donating this money to the July camp because they're homeless people. But in reality, they're donating the money to themselves because it's a front organization for the Mir. <laughs> well, to be fair, all that money was just sitting in a bank. It wasn't doing anything. <laughs> well, I mean, it was just you know sitting there. It's like, hey, we're going to borrow that. These front groups happen today. It happens in democracies, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, um, anyways. You just don't live in squalor. By, you can't live in squalor without money. Right. <laughs> well, anyways, like other camps organized subsequently, it forbade outsiders, including the police and military, to enter, maintaining order with its own popular militia. So, basically, this is a lawless area that Mir controls. They are the police force there. They are the judges there. Think of that. They're taking on elements of the state. A civil war was brewing. A state within a state was beginning to form. And when that happens, conflict is on the way. Violent conflict. Revolution is on. The leader of the revolutionary left movement, Miguel Enriquez, was from a prominent family in Concepcion. 
His uncle was a senator and had been president of the Radical Party. His father was a rector of the Concepcion University. Enriquez explained the difference between Mir and the Communist Party this way. The communists believe that it is necessary to perfect the regime in order to generate the forces that will destroy it. The Mir believes that it is necessary to immediately create the basis for the construction of socialism. For the communists, one should not struggle directly against capitalism. For us, the fundamental thing is to use violence to propel the working class in the city and the countryside, end quote. So here's a wealthy, privileged kid, just like Fidel Castro, calling for widespread violence to propel the working class into power. This always happens. It's always middle-class leftists leading these movements. It's never actual workers or a grassroots movement. As critical theorist Herbert Marcuse notes in his book One Dimensional Man, the workers are usually patriotic, especially when giving a relatively high standard of living. The most avid leftists today are usually fairly privileged and don't know hard work if it hit them over the head. Myself, I'll tell you, don't be left, don't be right, be above. Give space for one another, and there will be much more peace. The more you push, the more you create. And yeah, think for yourself. <laughs> well, yeah. Always think for yourself. Never listen to some jackass on that soapbox. In September 1970, something important happened. The radical leftists achieved an electoral breakthrough. It had started when the all left-wing parties organized a common political party to stand in the elections of 1970. It was called the Popular Unity Party. The party's 1969 program called for a number of radical steps. Here's how one historian describes the party program. Quote, The list of enterprises to be nationalized included 1. Large copper, nitrate, iron, iodine, and coal mines. 2. The financial system of the country. 3. Foreign trade. 4. The large distribution enterprises and monopolies. 5. Strategic industrial monopolies. 6. In general, those activities which decisively influence the economic and social development of the country, such as production of electricity and kerosene, rail, air, and maritime transport, communications. This lengthy list was to be a principal campaign issue and a first priority of the new government after it came to power. End quote. And the man who would try and implement this revolution was Salvador Allende. Allende was born into the wealthy upper class, of course. Here's how the New York Times described him in 1972. Quote, Allende is the son of a well-to-do and traditional family, the kind that owns several homes in Santiago, property out in the country, cottages on the Pacific, automobiles, securities, and money in the bank. End quote. He was a medical doctor, and after graduating, immediately became involved with left-wing parties. He was a member of the Chilean Congress for 20 years, and he obviously enjoyed living a wealthy lifestyle. Nonetheless, he was a committed socialist. He reminds me a lot of Bernie Sanders, very concerned with workers as he buys his wife a $600,000 lake house. This kills me about reformers. If you're so concerned about oppression, use your own money to help it. $600,000 can cover a lot of less privileged kids' medical bills. <laughs> Or, do you want to please your wife more than you care about children's medical expenses? We see, even for Bernie the Socialist, family is more important than any other consideration, showing once again the importance of family. Now, back to Allende. Here's the kicker. Allende won the vote, and he became president, but he only won 36.2% of the vote. So he doesn't have a majority, all right? <laughs> it was a three-way race, and the other two candidates took 34.9% and 27.8% of the vote, respectively. Allende does not have a majority mandate. 
The reaction of financial circles and of the ordinary citizens to the likelihood of a Marxist president was an immediate rush on the banks. The black market rate of the dollar skyrocketed, and members of the upper classes prepared to depart for other countries. <laughs> Literally fleeing. Rats leaving the second ship, huh? On September 13th, 1970, Allende held a mass rally in which he said, quote, If the people are defrauded of their victory, those who insanely try to provoke a situation should know that the whole country will stop. There will not be a company, an industry, a workshop, a school, a hospital, a farm that functions as a first demonstration of our strength. They should know that the workers will occupy the factories, the peasants the land, the bureaucrats will occupy the public buildings awaiting the orders of popular unity. End quote. The bureaucrats will occupy the building. Isn't that what they do <laughs> That's now? That's where they already are. <laughs> yeah. So they're going to sit in their chairs. The bureaucrats are showing up to work. Everybody else, you get to take the day. Bureaucrats, <laughs> back to work. You're there. All of this from a man who won 36% of the vote three days before. He says he represents, quote, the people. When that is simply not true, please, everyone listening, don't think like this. You don't represent everyone. The people you do represent aren't perfect. By the way, this proves the famous philosopher Carl Schmitt's notion that any sphere of life can become politicized. In this case, Allende is politicizing the economy. By politicized, I mean he's defining who's your friend and who's your enemy based off their economic function or their religion or their race. When this happens, whatever sphere is defining the enemy has become the political sphere. It's not just about religion or economics or whatever the sphere happens to be. It becomes about friend and enemy. It becomes life and death. We're seeing this play out in our show today. We're showing the fundamental power of philosophical ideas. Luke is the enemy. He is the enemy. (laughs) So Chris is becoming the sphere. Up against him. (laughs) Tear him down. All right, all right, all right. I'll give you an example. Let's say if Chris was a prophet... And you listening to this believed he was a, a prophet. prophet. And you, you were when he said, "I'm not a prophet." You would say, "You are a prophet, Chris." And we're going to we're going to destroy Luke because oh, you told us to. We're definitely going to destroy Luke. He, as the cult, has become the political sphere. He has taken on the friend enemy function of the state, even oh. though he started out as a religious figure. And Luke has become the frenemy. All right. Anyway, stop it. Here we go. We're going to get back to the show. All right. Of course, the United States had not been sitting idle this whole time. This was the height of the Cold War, and officials were very concerned about the prospect of a communist regime in South America. Therefore, millions more dollars were spent to stop Allende from coming to more power. Moreover, the CIA was authorized to seek a, quote, military solution to the problem by a direct presidential order. In other words, assassination. Think about that. This is more than influencing elections. This is hardcore support of a military coup. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, the Chilean economy was hemorrhaging. Here's how one observer described the events after the election of Allende. On September 23rd, the Chilean finance minister, Andres Zaldivar, spoke to the nation about the serious economic crisis which had followed the election. He reported that before the election, the economy had been growing at a rate of 5% with agricultural production expending at a considerably faster rate, 12%. The balance of payments was again favorable, with an expected surplus in 1970 of $200 million. Since the election, however, there had been withdrawals of nearly $1 billion from the banking system, and a reduction of 50 to 80% in sales of durable goods, of 60% in housing construction, and of 70% in automobile production. 
end quote if I could talk tonight. <laughs> this is nineteen seventy, so the president's Richard Nixon. Yeah, Nixon ordered that. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Tricky well, guess, Dick. Yeah, well, they're, they're, <laughs> fight, they're fighting in Vietnam, they're fighting here, because, I mean, you you got to imagine the Soviet Union's probably back in some of these levels. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Castro was a big supporter of Allende, and in turn, Castro was supported Forty heavily five. by the Soviet, Soviet Union. Yeah. So on November 5th, 1970, Allende delivered his first presidential speech, and this is some of the things he said, quote, he referred to the victims of police raids on shanty towns, and then he quoted Frederick Engels, Marx's friend and collaborator. The representatives of the people have all the power, and we can do what we want when we have the majority of the nation behind us. This is our Chile. Here, at last, the anticipation of Engels is fulfilled. He promised the destruction of large farms, monopolies, large industries, banks, foreign-owned companies, and mines, end quote. Allende immediately implemented his revolution. Super fast, super The revolution is on! Using an old decree law from the 1930s, he introduced key measures of his program by decree, like a sort of semi-dictatorship. Robert Mugabe did the same thing in Zimbabwe, using the legislation of the former Rhodesian Assembly to pass key legislation. So this whole time, Allende is saying he's going to keep pluralism and a constitutional democracy, but whenever he really wants to do something... Bam! He just implements it. Well, that's what you do when you got all the power in a democracy. You're like, yeah, pass this law that says I can stay in power as long as I want. No, in a democracy, there's checks and balances. So, well, he's using representative democracy to pass law to and a, and a pliable legislator to pass laws. No, he's using an emergency decree to rule by his decree. Oh, he's the, he's not. He's just saying. Oh, he oh he like a dictator. He's declared martial law. No, he doesn't that. have to because there's this old law from the 1930s. Oh, that gives he's him using. emergency powers. Emergency powers. Oh, okay. So he's implementing these quote unquote emergency powers for like economic things. Like I'm going to nationalize the oil company because it's uh, an emergency. Okay, so he, he's he's just grabbing power. He's acting like a dictator. Yeah. Now he keeps the parliament around, and they can still pass laws, and they still have power. I don't want you to think that he just totally took power. But when something really matters, when he has to get something done, bam, he just does it. Just does it. And that, to me, is dictatorship when it counts. Okay, this is really a dictatorship, and we can tell because we know Schmidt's definition of sovereignty, sovereign is he who decides. Since Allende has the power to decide to take your land, he is an actual dictator, even if he only really uses that power. Allende was establishing permanent state control over the economy. Banks were taken over through a variety of means, many of them highly highly unusual. Next, Allende implemented... Deficit. Deficit spending to win over the electorate to his program. Remember, he doesn't have a clear majority of support. He starts printing money to pay for widespread socialist reform. And for that a while, always works. For a while, it Let's did work. some more money. That's exactly what happened. The minimum wage increased by 40%. Regular workers received 35% raises. Minimum state pensions were increased to three times the inflation rate. Imagine getting a 35% raise and everything at the store costs about the same the next month. About a month. You're going to like that, though. You're going to be like, yeah, this is great. And it works for a little while, but every party has its hangover and a yen days was coming. First, his projected tax income was way too high. Allende assumed people would quit avoiding paying taxes now that a people's government was in power. <laughs> he really thought that. Hey guys, I just seized control. Now I want everybody to pay income tax. Dude, no. (laughs) 
Tax evasion, of course, continued. Well, he can make up the money with the income he received from nationalized businesses, right? Right. Wrong. The people he employed to take over the businesses didn't run them efficiently, and there were no profits. I don't believe it. For example, he appointed Mario Ramirez, a committed socialist and professor of education, as CEO of the state tire company, Manessa. The tire company collapsed. Did, does Mario not know tires around and made of rubber? Professor of Education is going to run the tire company. <laughs> Allende's solution to the lack of profits? Print money. Spin. Have a great time. It's Christmas year-round in Chile. Here's how one historian describes well, it. If you got a money print press and you're not using it, that's just money not being printed. That's just a waste of a money print press. Here's how a historian describes the short-lived miracle. Quote, the government's policy of increasing the money supply and promoting a consumption mini-boom without any concern for investment or long-run economic growth promoted support among the electorate. Yay! The opposition was able to attack the effect of the new government's policy on Chilean international reserves. At the time of Allende's accession to office, Chile had foreign reserves of $343 million dollars. The next government's economic economic policy led to a rapid decline in that figure. The escudo rapidly became overvalued. Thus, there was little incentive to export. While it was to the Chilean importers' advantage to buy foreign goods. Chilean tourists soon found that while the amount they were permitted to change into dollars for foreign travel was somewhat reduced, vacations in Europe or the United States were cheap. Because of the exchange rate, the Chilean government just assumed foreign investment would continue. No foreign capitalist would risk his money in Chile. That's when the violence escalated again. End quote. The southern provinces of Chile were awash in blood. Shortly after Allende came to power, a wave of strikes and land seizures swept through the south. According to police figures submitted to the Chilean Senate, 1,450 farms were occupied illegally between November 1970 and December 1971. There is no doubt that the seizures were encouraged by the rural branch of Mir. In some cases, the government intervened by taking the seized land from revolutionaries and appointing an administrator to run it. Hiring those who had occupied the land along with their friends and relatives and paying them the minimum wage with government bank credits. In other cases... It simply let the peasants remain without disturbing them. The situation was exacerbated when Allende pardoned mere members who were imprisoned for terrorism and bank robbery. Well, he's printing so much money, they can rob any bank now. We'll just print some more. Just, you don't have to do it, because I'll just give it to you. And now, they don't, have any, they, don't have any, they don't need to terrorize. Yeah. Now, I want to stop right there. When you allow the law to be broken in one place, you're asking for it to be broken in all places. If you will sanction robbery, why shouldn't I commit a coup or throw people out of helicopters? According to a leftist worldview, there are no moral absolutes. So if you have the power to steal my property, why shouldn't I try and throw you out of a helicopter? We're going to see that happens later on in the show today. (laughs) That's an important plot point. (laughs) That is a plot point. After all, Machiavelli said a man would sooner forget the death of his father than the theft of his property. It makes sense from a Darwinian point of view, doesn't it? Just because you value social justice more doesn't make your point of view any more objectively true, does it? This, in a nutshell, is the problem of the modern world. This is why there is no direction in our societies, why our families are breaking apart. Oh. Now, in only very rare cases, 
troops were sent in to remove the occupying peasants. Its own propaganda against preceding governments had taught Allende what political capital could be made of casualties linked to the government. Because they exploited all the times the centrist government before had heard of these, it shot these peasants <laughs> oh, who had did, occupied land. Did he so, not seize the media? So he's afraid of what can happen. <laughs> he sees some media, but there were still some news. If I start killing people. And foreign correspondents. That's not popular? <laughs> no, killing people is not popular. <laughs> okay. All right. You're going to write so, that down. Okay, like I said before... The peasants are occupying the land. They're very rarely removed, and when they are removed, it's always nonviolent because Allende doesn't want any bad press. <laughs> they use clubs. All right, so the Agrarian Reform Agency continued to, continued to expropriate land holdings above the legal limit of 160 acres of land. And in the case of some seizures, used the provisions of a 1967 law for the expropriation of abandoned farmland to take over smaller land holdings after they had been occupied. So, Chris, I occupy your house, and I hit you over the head with bats until you leave. Okay? You leave. So you're gone from the house I took over. Now the government says, wait, Chris abandoned that house. It's there empty. We're going to have to take it and give it to the people who are patiently using it now. What do you think, Chris? You like that? I don't like that at all. That doesn't sound like a good idea at all. That's what happened. I'm going to vote against that guy <laughs> well, and the person beating me up with a glove. Well, at the same time, you did get beat up. You've been kicked out of your house, but you got a 35% increase in your job. Yeah, it's not too bad. <laughs> so, Can I get a million-dollar bill? It's, it's on the way. <laughs> Historian Simon Collier and William Sater described the problems Allende's rural policies caused. Quote, The countryside replicated many of the problems now affecting the copper mines. Government objectives conflicted with peasant aspirations. Peasants were reluctant to allow the state to take the place of their former masters. The government seemed incapable of appreciating the peasant aspiration to ownership, not socialism. One native Chilean noted, Quote, it does not matter who is the owner of capital, but rather who has the power to decide. Echoing Carl Schmidt's sovereign is he who decides. Who's the decider? We change nothing if we merely change the group which exploits the workers in the capitalist system for interventions designed by bureaucrats. Between 1970 and 1973, the amount of land cultivation fell by around one-fifth, 20%. Harvests of potatoes, rice, sugar beet fell by one-third. Fear of an expropriation so terrified some private farmers, they simply refused to plant, sold off machinery, or slaughtered their livestock. Peasants in the reform sector proved almost as recalcitrant as the farmers, devoting most of their efforts to cultivating their private plots. End quote. <laughs> so basically large farming is beginning to collapse. And smaller farming, too, because remember, he's using that, you abandoned your farm, and you got your head kicked in <laughs> by <laughs> ten dudes. <laughs> Oh, did you abandon that? Oh. <laughs> oh. We're going to expropriate. Now, what was the result of this program? All right. One government official called it accelerated agrarian reform. <laughs> I love these names. <laughs> accelerated agrarian reform. <laughs> Paul Sigmund provides the answer. Quote, by 1972, inflation began to skyrocket. The 1972 harvest dropped by 3.6%, and in 1973, the decline was a catastrophic 16%, influenced by a nationwide strike at the time 
of the planting in October 1972. Meanwhile, food imports rose from $168 million in 1970 to $260 million in 1971, $383 million in 1972, and $619 million in 1973. All of these food imports required foreign currency. Chile, on the road to socialism, was returning to dependency through her belly. End quote. It's almost like seizing a bunch of farmers' lands, kicking them off, and putting a bunch of jack wagons who don't know how Education to do Education professors. <laughs> Education professors in charge of stuff they have no idea what they're doing is a bad idea. <laughs> Chile was running out of food. The anticipation of Ingalls in Chile was fulfilled. Peasants and people who refused to work began occupying houses they liked. Allende's government negotiated with them to leave after he gave them new housing. So here's a government... Or if you want a new house and you don't want to work, all you have to do is go occupy your neighbor's house and you'll get a free one. Jump in front of the line. <laughs> you don't do that thing here in America. You get your ass blown off. <laughs> that's, that's about right. Assassinations and gun battles were becoming monthly occurrences. By October 1972, succeeding confrontations between supporters of the government and the opposition eroded the civility which had held Chile together. And Chile began to divide into two hostile and armed camps. By this time, the worst inflation in Chile's inflation-prone history began to gather momentum, eliminating most of the real gains the lower- and middle-income people had made in the preceding years. On December 1st, 5,000 women protested the lack of food and rising cost of living in a public demonstration called the March of the Empty Pots. The marchers were accompanied by serious incidents of violence when the women were attacked by followers of Mir and tear gas was used by the police riot squad on the women. The violence led to the declaration of a state of emergency and a curfew in Santiago. Allende defended the police action and commented the march was made up of women from the upper class areas who have never known what it's like to be without food and who arrived at the demonstration in powerful cars. So Allende is demonizing hungry women from the upper class areas, precisely the kind of women who raised, educated, and nurtured Allende himself. What did Shakespeare say? Good wombs have brought forth bad fruit. In the meantime, violent leftists were importing hidden weapons from Cuba. When the military decided to enforce an arms control law, they found huge stockpiles of weapons by both leftists and right-wingers. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. What? All right, so the guy in power... He seized all this land, handed it out to peasants. He's printing money, giving everybody a raise. There's somebody farther to his left that's like, <laughs> this dude ain't radical enough. Yes, they were called Mir. <laughs> they were more radical than Allende. Oh, I thought, okay, sorry. I, I, I thought Mir was hanging out with Allende. Allende is trying to kiss up to Mir and pleading with them to stop causing violence. But Mir is not controlled by Allende. Although, they are considered allies. So it's allies, but not control. You see the difference? So Mir's basically like anarchy. They're, they're, they're so radically left that they want just total anarchy. No, they want to control areas, and they actually do take control of some factory districts and rural areas. Mir controls it like a, like its own state within a state. Okay. And they choose, just like the Bolsheviks did, the Bolsheviks worked with the Democratic government for a few months during the Bolshevik Revolution. Mm-hmm. Mir does the same thing. Oh, okay. But the orders that are obeyed come from the Mir people. They just happen to echo what Allende they says say. some of the time. Ah. You see what I mean? Gotcha, gotcha. All right. In 1973, Allende's party won only 44% of the vote in a general election. After all the deficit spending, 
Allende still had a minority of the vote. He couldn't believe it. On June 21st, bombs exploded outside the offices of the Socialist Party, the Cuban Embassy, and the government-controlled television broadcaster. What, they go over on the Dukes of Hazard? Too many Dukes of Hazard reruns. <laughs> now people on the right were committing terrorist acts. The president of the Central Workers' Confederation also went on the air to call for worker occupation of factories and agricultural centers. They should have printed more leaflets. In a single day... The number of companies taken over by the government nearly doubled, rising from 282 to 526. Whole areas of major cities were controlled by communes and took orders from the Communist Party only. Did they have enough bongo drums to hang out? I don't know. Assassinations of prominent military figures and right-wingers continued. A small group of army officers revolted against the Allende government and were put down by the remaining loyal units. In short, Chile was coming apart. Middle-class neighborhoods began to organize into so-called neighborhood committees, which took on a new vitality and began to develop plans for self-defense and concealment of opposition political leaders. On the other side... Since October, the revolutionary left movement had been organizing the industrial areas and some of the informal settlements into para-governmental industrial belts that controlled highway access to the cities. The Mir also began to use some left-controlled factories to manufacture and distribute arms. So they're actually manufacturing <laughs> arms now. By August 1973, everyone expected a civil war. Everyone smelled blood in the air. By September 6, strikes were paralyzing the country. Hospitals were ceasing to function. There was an acute shortage of bread. Something was going to happen. Still, no one expected a coup was soon coming. And the coup was being planned at a birthday party of a little girl, a little girl named Jacqueline, who happened to have the last name Pinochet. The decision had already been made the day before, September 8th. A joint declaration of intervention was written by the heads of the Air Force, Navy, and Army while children played outside at the birthday party. Here's how one general describes the planning of the coup. Quote, Pinochet was very relaxed. He listened to the proposal as if he saw no other solution. I pressed Pinochet, saying, What are you going to do? As for us, we can't take it anymore. If we don't act, the whole country will sink into chaos. Pinochet told me, Have you thought about the fact that this can cost us our lives and the lives of many others? I've thought about it, I answered. Pinochet hesitated briefly, and I pushed him, saying, Decide, General. Sign. Pinochet went to his desk, opened the drawer, took out a pen and his stamp inside the document. The coup was on. Initially, the police did not know about the coup plans. At first, they seemed to support Allende. 300 policemen surrounded the presidential palace in order to protect him from the coup plot. However, they left when they learned the police leadership had declared themselves for the coup. Allende was completely shocked by all this. He couldn't believe it. Wait, guys! Everybody gets a raise! <laughs> Army units had orders to report for action at 4 a.m., and three hours later they began to move. By 8.15, Concepcion, Chile's third largest city and a stronghold of leftist sentiment, had been taken over without a hitch. Government leaders were arrested at dawn. As one of them ruefully remarked, before we were fully awake, we were in prison. The army later said it had disconnected the telephones of 1,800 pro-government leaders in Concepcion just before taking over the city. 
Valparaiso was occupied by the Navy before 7 a.m. The main center of action was the capital, Santiago. At 6.20 a.m., Allende was informed that the Navy had seized Valparaiso. He may have thought this was only a naval rebellion, which he could handle by negotiation. Salvador took stock of his situation and decided to set up headquarters at the Presidential Palace in Santiago, a symbol of what he considered to be his legitimacy. The military took immediate steps to surround the palace. Wait a minute, just so we're sure, the entire Chilean Navy? Uh, <laughs> just part of it took over. <laughs> oh, just part of the Chilean Navy. <laughs> well, the, the Navy leadership, yes, the entire the, Navy has gone okay, against the, it. The fearsome Chilean I Navy. I see what you're saying, yeah. The coup leaders on the ground were General Javier Palacios. Here's his description of the next events. Quote, General Pinochet called me and said, I want you to take charge of the armored regiment and surround the palace with tanks. I replied, I will do all my general commands. At dawn, Palacios took the lead of the regiment located at that time in Santa Rosa. And he said, At 5.30 I called the men together and I told them all, All aboard, muchachos! The men took their places. It was in that spirit that we undertook the operation. There was intense crossfire around the palace all morning. They shot at us from all sides, from the public works, from the old workers' insurance building, everywhere. By maintaining on the radio, the president had categorically rejected any possibility of surrender. But he fired up the snipers who sniped at us. And they are get raises. <laughs> Everybody gets a raise. You, that sniper. That, that sniper. sniper. Well, they keep missing. Maybe the snipers don't get raises. The president responded to our demands without hiding his anger. He told me, What do you believe in, you shitty traitors? The president does not give up. And he hung up on me. At 8.30 a.m. on September 11th, 1973, Chileans heard a strange announcement on their radios. Radio Agricultura in Santiago, interrupted its regular programming to play the Chilean national anthem, following it up with this announcement. Atención. A partir de este momento, damos paso a una red provincial y nacional. This is the network of the armed forces and the police. The grave social and moral crisis in the country. The government's inability to control the chaos and the constant increase in paramilitary groups trained by the Popular Unity Party, which will lead Chile to an inevitable civil war, must end. We demand that President Salvador Allende turn over his office to the military and national police, and we declare that the armed forces and police are united in carrying out their historic mission and responsibility to fight for the liberation of the fatherland, to prevent the country from falling under the Marxist yoke, and to seek the restoration of order and institutionality. The broadcast advised Santiago residents to remain in their homes and ordered the press, radio, and television to cease to function beginning at this instant or be subject to attacks by the Chilean Army and Air Force. So the guy here in Gilligan's Island is in trouble? Yeah. In a direct radio message to the nation, Allende replied, I am ready to resist by whatever means, even at the cost of my life, so that this may serve as a lesson. In the history of those who would use force and not reason. This was a reference to the Chilean motto, by reason and, or by force. One by one, the pro-government radio stations left the air, and the military radio began to broadcast its justification for the coup. Proclamation number five on the military listed 14 points, beginning, 
Quote, the government of Allende has incurred serious illegitimacy as is demonstrated by its violation of fundamental rights of freedom of expression, education, the right of assembly, to strike, to petition the government, the right to property. It accused the government of artificially fomenting class struggle. It observed that the agricultural, commercial, and industrial economy of the country is in stagnation and decline, and inflation is increasing at an accelerated rate. By 9.30 a.m., only one pro-government radio station continued to broadcast. And on it, Allende delivered his last message to the Chilean people. As you hear this broadcast, I want you to notice the machine gun fire in the background. Here is what Allende said. Surely this will be my last opportunity to address you. My words do not have bitterness but disappointment. May they be a moral punishment for those who have betrayed their oath, the soldiers of Chile. Given these facts, the only thing left for me is to say to the workers, I'm not going to resign. Placed in a historic transition, I will pay for loyalty to the people with my life. They have strength and will be able to dominate us. But social processes can be arrested neither by crime nor force. History is ours and people make history. Workers of my country, I want to thank you for the loyalty you always had, the confidence that you deposited in a man who is only an interpreter of great yearnings for justice. At this definitive moment, the last moment when I can address you, I wish to take advantage of the lesson. Foreign capital, imperialism, together with the reaction, created the climate in which the armed forces broke their tradition. I address the modest woman of our land, the Capacina, who believed in us, the worker who labored more, the mother who knew our concern for children. I address the youth, those who sang and gave us their joy and their spirit of struggle. I address the man of Chile, the worker, the farmer, the intellectual, those who will be persecuted. History will judge the fascists, workers of my country. I have faith in Chile and its destiny. Other men will overcome this dark and bitter moment when treason seeks to prevail. Go forward knowing that the great avenues will open again where free men will walk to build a better society. Long live Chile! Long live the people! Long live the workers! The military leaders in charge of the siege of the presidential palace were in telephone contact with Allende throughout the morning. They gave him until 11 a.m. to surrender, repeating several times an offer of safe conduct out of the country for him and his family. At about 10 a.m., the president permitted his family and friends to leave. He donned a helmet, gas mask, and bulletproof vest and carried a submachine gun which had been a gift to him from Fidel Castro inscribed to my friend and comrade-in-arms, Salvador. Left-wing snipers took up positions in the mansions surrounding the buildings. No one knows how many there were. Other than the snipers, the only defenders of Allende were 30 members of his Praetorian Guard. When negotiations between Allende and the military broke down, the coup leaders sent fighter bombers to bomb the palace. At 11.55 a.m., the rocket bombing runs began. A total of 18 rockets hit the building, and when the seven bombing runs were completed at 12.12 p.m., a thick cloud of black smoke billowed out of the north-central facade and flames leapt out of the main entrance. After 140 years of constitutional rule, the military was burning the symbol of civilian government in Chile. The bombing was to discourage the resistance which it was feared might come from factories where arms had been stored. In fact, there seems to have been significant resistance only at the Sumar Nylon factory. 
which was bombed after it shot down a helicopter, and in the military occupation of the neighboring La Legua sector. The left-dominated technical university was also the scene of a shooting when it was occupied by the military on September 12th. The fighting continued for a time at the Samar plant, but for all practical purposes, the military controlled the country by mid-afternoon of September 11th. Estimates vary widely on the number of dead, but all agree that many more were killed after the coup than during it. Thousands of socialists and communists were rounded up and held in two stadiums in Santiago, as well as on islands and in detention camps elsewhere in the country. That's fine. They get to be with their friends. The top politicians were held in the military academy, but some important figures of the extreme left went underground and escaped the country. Most of the leadership of the revolutionary left movement also eluded capture. An exception was the much-publicized guerrilla leader, Comandante Pepe, who was ordered shot by a military court in the south. Miguel Enriquez, head of Mir, was killed in Santiago more than a year after the coup. Now, after the bombers striked the presidential palace, a four-man team from the palace crossed into the military's lines to negotiate a surrender, but were unable to return due to guerrilla sniper fire. From their own people. Well, no, no, no surrender, baby. Shortly after 1.30 p.m., the besieging troops gave the defenders a four-minute deadline to capitulate. Allende, who was defending, defending the palace from the second floor, yelled, Surrender! This is a massacre! Shortly before 2 p.m., General Palacios, the coup leader on the ground outside the palace, decided to enter it. He led the assault through the front gate of the palace, braving terrible fire from snipers and Allende's die-hard troops in the palace. He remembered what it was like like this, quote, I wasn't commanded to go, but I wanted to go in personally and ask President Allende to surrender because he had no way out. I was not sent by anyone. In fact, I was not the direct commander of the troops. Remember, I entered right through the door where I had to face an armed group of Allende's personal guard. They fought to the last men. There were a few in an upstairs hallway. They shouted, Marxism does not give up to shit like you. One of them was Juan Palequio. He shot us, and the shot hit a wall, bounced off a helmet of an officer next to me, and hit me in the hand. A corporal got hit in the side. He fell down with a thud. I tied a handkerchief around the wound and continued to fight, clearing one room at a time in bloody hand-to-hand combat. When I got upstairs, I remember a soldier came and said, My general, the president is dead in the independence room. I run in and I see him reclining in an armchair with the submachine gun that Fidel Castro had given him. Beside him was a man. It was Dr. Patricio Goujon. He told me what happened. A young day's Dr. Patricio said he saw the president shoot himself through the chin with the submachine gun. Here's what the doctor later said about the event. Quote, At this precise instant, I saw the president seated on a sofa, fire the submachine gun that he held between his legs. I saw it, but I did not hear it. I saw his buddy shudder and the roof of his skull fly off. End quote. I was hoping he would go out kind of like Scarface, say hello to my little friend, and just start mowing people down. The military imposed a nationwide 24-hour curfew at 3 p.m. Military patrols were sent to arrest former leaders of the Marxist regime. Many escaped the country, most crossed into Argentina. Many more turned themselves in. There were a few scattered clashes during the roundup. A few of the left-wing leaders died in the process. Whether they were executed after capture or actually died fighting, no one knows. 
Much more blood was shed later, as the new military rulers initiated the brutal process of destroying the power of the Marxist left. In the succeeding weeks of the military junta, headed by General Augusto Pinochet, they closed the Chilean Congress, outlawed pro-Allende political parties, and declared the other parties in recess. They appointed military men to the head of all of Chile's universities, dissolved the trade unions, established censorship of the media, and conducted continuous roundups of real or supposed enemies of the regime, many of whom were held in Santiago's two large soccer stadiums. The courts continued to function, but they refused jurisdiction over the political arrests, citing the state of siege in the time of war. The military junta legislated by a series of decree laws, one of which later stated that if any of the military decrees were in violation of the Constitution, it was to be considered as a constitutional amendment. That's convenient. <laughs> that solves that problem. <laughs> hey, anything I do, yeah, that's in the Constitution now. <laughs> Yeah, I just farted. It's in the Constitution now. Allende's government was destroyed. Naked rule by generals was the order of the day. In the days after the coup, the military arrested and interned in the National Stadium large number of foreign extremists and conducted house-to-house searches for arms and subversives by which they meant Marxist literature. A single instance of book burning widely reported in the foreign press, took place during the searches of the San Borja apartments. The Cubans were deported at the end of the week, and other foreign sympathizers of Allende fled on their own. But many, including a number of Americans, were compelled to undergo horrifying experiences of detention, maltreatment, and in some cases, including two Americans, death at the hands of military inquisitors. The New York Times estimated the number killed during and after the coup at 2,500. Reliable estimates put the number killed at about 3,000. Patricia Verdugo, in her book, Chile, Pinochet, and the Caravan of Death, estimates 100 individuals were shot at the stadium alone. The exact numbers will never be known. These people are weak. Only 100 guys? Stalin and Hitler. Oh, yeah. (laughs) My mouth was literally open. I mean, 100 (laughs) people is a lot of people. Oh, that's totally a lot of people. I'm just saying, if they killed like a million, that's more of a statistic. 100? Like... That's not a lot of people. Well, isn't that sad? Doesn't that speak to the horrors of the 20th century that we had only high kill counts intrigue us? <laughs> well, yeah, brutal the dictators. hundred people. Look, they killed thousands. This is at, just at the stadium. I know. And this doesn't include wounded. You get your butt kicked in. Oh, yeah, yeah. Knocked that, off. It's horrifying. This is a horrifying thing, all these people dying. But I'm just saying, the grand scheme of things, there are, there are some other dudes running around in the 20th century murdered a lot more people. we got to think, per capita, this is a small country. <laughs> per capita <laughs> yeah. murder. So if That's you, a good way to put it. If you think, Statistically speaking, this is a larger percentage of the population is getting murdered. <laughs> which is horrible. I don't. Yeah, yeah, I think one life is terrible. I'm not even lying. I believe. Well, obviously, yes. All right, here we go. When asked about the continuing reports of bodies floating in the Mapocho River in Santiago, General Pinochet replied, "They must have been killed in fighting among guerrilla groups. <laughs> they fought each other." <laughs> hey, there's a hey, that's a gorilla. What about that guy? Gorilla. Oh, that little kid. Gorilla. Shouldn't be fighting each other. <laughs> His reply was typical of the responses of the military to foreign criticisms of torture and repression, a denial that they even took place. Estimates of the total number of Chileans who were detained range from 45,000 to 90,000. 
Many of these were apolitical, though a majority were supporters of left-wing causes. Thousands of the detainees were tortured. The exact number of tortured prisoners is unknown. So there's even more criminality for you, Chris. Well, they were they were all guerrillas. All right, one. Prison- I don't think the general would lie to us. Of course not. It's very above board. <laughs> they tortured themselves while they were in the room. <laughs> they were torturing themselves. The political, the soldiers were trying to stop them. Yeah. They, they, Obviously. Okay, it's not funny. Stop it. All right. One prisoner's name was Felipe. Felipe. And here's how he describes what happened in the stadium. Quote, I was blindfolded and subjected to routine beatings for no reason, including being thrown against concrete walls beneath the stands at times head first. I was subjected to masses, massive amounts of electricity over my entire body, including my genitals, and I was burned with cigarettes, end Ouch. quote. Another prisoner, Roberto, was shot in his left arm in 1973 on the night he was arrested. He said that he was rounded up while providing first aid in a poor Santiago neighborhood the night of the coup, and that he did not receive medical attention for the wound for several days. Instead, he was beaten when he complained. We should have been fighting for the guerrillas. <laughs> Roberto said he was relieved when he was removed from the stadium to what he considered a less inhumane Santiago prison to finish his one-year sentence. He had a one-year sentence because he was helping civilians. Helping gorillas. Well, I read the article about this guy. I think he was legitimately trying to help. Oh, him. no, he was definitely. Sorry, yeah. we were being facetious for comedic effect. Obviously, this guy was... was just, just helping people. Got rounded up accidentally. And rounded up by the leaders of this government, I which mean, are What's the awful. average lifespan? 70 years? That's one-seventieth of your life gone. Yeah. You know? Oh. Just because you were helping people. Just because you were helping people. Yeah. Now I'm going to tell you the tragic history of the caravan of death. 40 minutes in, and we're finally getting to the name of the podcast that you just said that's awesome because you said it within the podcast. Well, I had to set the stage. We had to get to this point. I'll allow it. All right. Here's how Patricia Verdugo describes the event. Quote, After General Augusto Pinochet's coup, 75 Chileans were arrested in their homes or places of work. Others appeared voluntarily before the new military authorities when they saw their names in the official list. In October 1973, while these people were in jail, a special commission from the capital, headed by General Sergio Ariano Stark, traveled by helicopter to four locations in northern Chile and one in the south, took some of these prisoners from the jails, and executed them, end quote. I'm going to tell you their story now. All of these prisoners were prominent leftists, men who had been involved at the highest levels of Allende's government, true believers in the socialist revolution. Here's an overview of how the process worked. General Ariano would fly to a camp and review the list of prisoners. He placed check marks by the names of the ones he wanted liquidated, and those persons would be taken out of jail to another location and executed. Ariano made sure he was not present at the actual executions. Newspapers reported the prisoners were shot while trying to escape. And fighting for the guerrillas. 75 people were killed in this manner. Let me set the context. When the new coup commanders failed to remove communists from their positions fast enough, local right-wing citizens came to the army camps to denounce the communists and have them removed. There was an element of popular support for the coup that's often not reported in the media. Many citizens actually supported it. 
For instance, at a hospital in the town of Talca, the director of the hospital, Dr. Alberto Contreras, a communist, was still in charge of the institution three days after the coup. Right-wing civilians drove to the military commander of the local regiment in charge and pressured him to remove Contreras. Three days later, General Pinochet called the local commander and said, quote, What's going on in Talca? Tell Commander Janet to immediately change the director of the hospital because I don't take any shit. And this must be done right away. Click! And he hung up the phone. That's all he said. Well, he's a decider. <laughs> yeah, decisive. Dr. Contreras was removed the same day. The same thing is happening up and down the country. In days following the coup, intelligence services had each commander of local regiments across the country draw up a list of the top 100 communist sympathizers in their area. They used these lists for mass arrests. Some of the men put on these lists were simply killed. When a captain confronted General Pinochet about the mass arrests, here's what Pinochet said, quote, Look, Captain, you shouldn't have asked that. As far as I know, your friend's in prison for his socialist ideas. But I'd like to give you some advice, Captain. Don't involve yourself in something that's none of your damn business. Yeah, he's just helping that guy out. Said, so, you know, you go do your job over here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to round up the communist over here. You don't worry about that. Military officers who failed to provide harsh sentences for leftists would themselves be sentenced to jail time for, quote, not performing their military duties, end quote. And that was the problem for the coup leaders. They considered many local military officers too lenient with the socialist prisoners they sentenced. Pinochet decided to take matters into his own hand. This was the start of the caravan of death. Here's how Paul Sigmund describes the caravan, quote, the Caravan of Death was a military team headed by General Ariano Stark that traveled in a Puma helicopter to five cities. Their purpose was to, quote, standardize sentences, end quote. But in fact, they were sent to, quote, toughen the military in the provinces by executing political prisoners who were awaiting trial or had received lenient sentences, end quote. They were putting it in an express elevator all the way to execution. Yeah. It began in Coquinas on September 30th and continued in the cities of La Serena, Copiopo, Antofagasta, and Calama from October 16th to 19th. Newspapers reported prisoners had been shot while trying to escape. Here's an example of a newspaper report. Quote, Four extremists were executed at dawn pursuant to the sentence of court-martial. The four were captured on September 12th when they tried to attack and murder members of the armed forces. Therefore, they have paid with their lives for their nefarious and bloody scheme to murder their countrymen, end quote. Here's what Patricia Verdugo said actually happened to the men. During the night, General Ariano's entourage took 14 detainees whose cases were in process from the prison to a ravine called the Quidebro del way and killed all of them with submachine gun fire and repeater rifles after that they took the bodies to the antofagasta hospital morgue and since it was very small and all the bodies didn't fit most were left outside all of the bodies were mutilated with approximately 40 bullet wounds each end quote no one knows what happened to eugene ruiz oriego a committed socialist. He was arrested on September 12th. His mother found out he was dead on October 21st. She describes his body this way, quote, He was missing his left eye. The lids were swollen, but he had no wounds or cuts. They took his eye out with something. His nose was broken, pierced, swollen on the inside, and detached as far as one of the nostrils. His lower jaw was broken in several places. The mouth 
was a swollen, bloody mess. The right ear was torn from the lobe upward. He had signs of burns. He had small cuts and bruises all over. He was shot in the shoulder and the stomach, end quote. So they're just beating, beating these people. Like <laughs> One had 40 shots. Another one's beaten to death and tortured. Yeah, just, I mean, like, bloody murder. Bloody murder from the highest authorities of your country. On October 16th, General Stark landed in La Serena and informed the local military authorities of his extraordinary power. He was the delegate of the commander-in-chief of the army and the military junta. There were hundreds of prisoners in La Serena's jail. Two military jeeps carrying soldiers wearing black berets parked in front of the jail at approximately 1 p.m. 15 prisoners were taken away. At around 4 p.m., loud, repeated bursts of submachine gun fire could be heard. Only the guards returned. That night, the newspaper published this report. 15 persons executed for different reasons. End quote. General Ariano arrived in Kayama at 10.30 a.m. on Friday, October 19th. Colonel Rivera was the commander of the 15th Infantry Regiment and describes how General Stark carried out the executions. And as you listen to this, picture a large troop carrier helicopter landing like Darth Vader at the beginning of Return of the Jedi. On the Death Star 2? On the Death Star 2. This is what the Death Squad looks like. Quote, Ariano was very strange. When his helicopter door opened, all of his men came running out with still helmets Uniforms full of ammunition clips and submachine guns. General Ariano was in his combat uniform and marched out after them. He was also very tense. He told me that he had come to review and accelerate the trials. He showed me the paper that said he was a delegate of the commander-in-chief, and it was signed by General Pinochet. I believe this made him supreme chief. That's the way I understood it. He became the judge from that moment on. In fact, he took over all the cases from me. He reviewed them, and he congratulated me, and then he asked what a court-martial would be established at 10.30 p.m. I was not at the court-martial. I asked the commander to summarize the events. He told me the court-martial summoned the persons charged at 5 p.m. 26 people were taken from the jail to Topater Hill and executed there. According to Patricia Verdugo, 26 prisoners were slaughtered with firearms and knives. She reports, quote, In some cases, Ariano's men acted sadistically. Several prisoners were not shot but were killed slowly. Some of the witnesses became sickened by the executions. It was horrible. A typical example. They would fire a shot in the victim's legs and then another shot closer to the heart, and that way they killed them little by little. Knives were used. Some men who didn't want to participate were made to do so. Now it's your turn, buddy! Get in there! The others would say, and they would pass around the weapons. They particularly took it out on Geraldo Cabrera, whom they hated because he was hostile. They made him die slow. On October 24th, the military junta suspended summary executions. The caravan of death was over. The military began the process of taking over vital institutions, Universities were distrusted as hotbeds of Marxism, taken over. Trade unions were dissolved, taken over. In a few weeks, the army had created a major shift in civil society that can't be overestimated. The military later published evidence claiming Allende was plotting a military takeover of the country. Leftists say most of the military's evidence is forged or misrepresented. Many, but not all, disinterested observers agree with the leftists. 
However, Paul Sigmund, a Princeton professor I think has written the best book on the subject in English, believes Allende was preparing for a future conflict, but not a satanic bloodbath like the military portrayed in their justification of the coup d'etat. The new regime published widespread examples of corruption by Allende's officials. Hundreds of thousands of dollars obtained through corruption were allegedly found in high-ranking Allende officials' houses. One general had this to say, You only had to see the leaders of the communists and how they lived. Those sacred cows who said they were leading the people to their liberation. All that was found was whiskey, jewels, furs, American dollars, women, exotic objects which were really incredible. Pornography. They thought that by going without a tie, they could act like workers or employees. They were hypocrites, end quote. I should point out that these findings are, of course, denied by leftist commentators. The truth is, no one knows how bad the corruption really was. But from my own experience, I find there is usually a distorted truth in reports like these. General Pinochet ruled Chile as a virtual dictator from 1973 to 1990. In 1990, he slowly transitioned the country back to a democracy, reserving for himself the position of commander-in-chief of the Chilean armed forces until 1998, and he declared himself a senator for life at that time. In October 1998, Pinochet was arrested for violations of human rights while visiting London, because of his ill health, he was released in 2000 and returned to Chile. He died on December 10, 2006. There were reports he illegally amassed about $28 million through arms deals. After his death, Pinochet was treated to the same treatment he had given Allende. Widespread accusations of criminal activity were widely published across Chile and the world. I've got a quarter in my pocket. On one side it's heads and on the other it's tails. They're two sides of the same quarter. If Allende was guilty of rule by decree, so was Pinochet. But I would remind listeners, St. Paul tells us in Galatians, what you reap is what you sow. Allende wanted rule by decree, Pinochet gave it to him. Allende wanted social justice, Pinochet gave him what he believed was justice. I know it's hard for many of us to understand, but when you presume your morality to be just, remember, there is someone else who believes the same thing about their morality. Don't take my word for it. The famous political philosopher Alasdair MacIntyre wrote in his book After Virtue, quote, We have lost our comprehension of morality. The most striking feature of contemporary moral utterance is that so much of it is used to express disagreements that are interminable. I do not mean by this just that such debates go on and on, although they do that but also that they apparently can find no termination. There seems to be no rational way of securing moral agreement in our culture. End quote. What's McIntyre's point? When you impose your morality on someone, he might just learn the lesson and start returning the favor to you. And so I will remind you there are two sides to every one story. And we sincerely tried to let you hear both sides on our show tonight. And remember, every time you see a coin, there are two sides to it. Not just the one you see when you're looking at it. Not just the side you like or wish we all saw. Your wishes mean nothing. There are still two sides. That's right, Luke. And remember, everybody, if we all live by kindergarten rules, keep your hands to yourself. And if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. We'll all get along just fine. Well, that's great, Luke. Another another happy, uplifting podcast that we giggled our way through about uh, human suffering and tragedy from the 21st century. Battlecast, stories of hope to salve the soul. (laughs) 
We'd like to thank you, all you out there, for listening. Remember to hit the subscriber button for instant battlecast whenever new episodes hit. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. If not, Luke is sad. Nobody likes sad Luke. You can get more you can get more Battlecast by going to thebattlecast.com where you can find bonus content for free. Also, if you use Facebook, we have a Facebook page which is now linked to the website. So anytime Luke posts something or I post something, it'll go directly to the Facebook page. If you have any questions, please email us at battlecastnet at gmail.com. And that's it for me here at the North Georgia Bunker. I want to let you all know that we have a very interesting documentary called Estadio Nacional up on the website if you'd like to see what conditions were like in the stadium where Pinochet put people. I want to thank everyone who's written in and supported the show. Guys, it really touches my heart to hear that you guys are listening to us out there as you commute and as you work. I know it's a crazy work week, but there's one thing you can always remember any day of the week, wherever you are, Whatever you're doing, I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye.